Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Twitch is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 115, recorded April 14, 2011. Ignore the recall, people. This episode of This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twitch. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. Welcome to Twitch This Week in Computer Hardware. I'm Patrick Dorton, joined as always by the man, the myth, the PCPer.com legend, Mr. Ryan Shrout. What's up, man? Uh, not much. And Is it finally officially- getting nice weather out here and everything? Uh, forcing myself to stay inside and work, though, however difficult it might be. Is it actually like seventy degrees and sunny shirt sleeve weather? Um, it was more like in the sixties today. I probably could have worn shorts, but <laughs> eh, you know, whatever. It's trying to class it up for you way. guys on the show, right? So I got I got jeans on. Or do we I? don't actually know that that you you we've never seen you stand up, man. <laughs> <laughs> I might not be wearing pants, Patrick. <laughs> That's uh, probably it's something, something we would have not. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's chipset week here on Twitch. <laughs> it is. It well, is. There's a lot of weird chipset. A lot. A lot of weird announcements slash promises of announcement and that, and, and that kind of stuff. I guess first thing we'll talk about is USB 3.0 and chipset adoption and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, frequent listeners or viewers of the show will know that we like, we like us some USB 3.0. It's uh, fast. It's, it's fast. backwards compatible. Uh, yes. All, all, of the, all of those good things, all two of those with the third repeated, those are all awesome. And if you've, if you've had USB 3.0 on your motherboard and you have an accessory and you've used it, you understand our enthusiasm for it. Anytime you can get 350 to 400 megs of actual throughput on, on an external device, that's really, really impressive. Right now, all the motherboards, all the laptops, all the systems that have it, they're all using third-party chips. Um, NEC is probably the most popular one right now. There's a rev- something such as an R, Revasis. Rev- There's another couple of controllers. V has a controller uh, mm-hmm. that's in the mix as well. Nobody still has integrated USB 3.0 on the chipset directly, um, which is, it, it's probably kind of expected. We, ha- we don't see as many chipset iterations in 2011 as we used to, say, in 2007 or 2008, where it seemed like every, every quarter or some, something like that, there was an NVIDIA or a VIA or an SIS or an Ali or something like that chipset iteration coming out into the market. Now that chipsets pretty much don't matter anymore, for the most part, uh, we're left with AMD and Intel and, and how quickly they iterate with this stuff. So the first bit was uh, news that AMD was going to be the first major mi- microprocessor manufacturer to have USB 3.0 capable chipsets certified by the USB implementers forum. Uh, this was a news post, news story found on uh, the register. Uh, they were talking to AMD spokesman Phil Hughes, talking about the A7, A75 and A70M FCHs, which are fusion controller hubs now. 
uh, are shipping today to OEMs, and the company would have more news um, on desktop-related parts in the coming weeks. Now, the Fusion Controller Hub means that this is going towards the low-end parts and probably what we're going to see in the upcoming AMD Lano release as well. Um, so that's that's good news for desktop users, people that want to build new systems. It looks like uh, the parts will have four USB 3.0 ports, 10 <laughs> USB 2.0 ports, and two USB 1.1 ports for whatever reason that is, I guess. You see 10 USB 2.0 ports? 10 USB 2.0, yes. That's kind of, I'm into that. <laughs> yeah, now that doesn't mean every motherboard is going to implement that many, right? right. That just means the chipset has support for it. And I think if we, I think like the P67 motherboards and that kind of stuff, like the modern ones, I think they actually support up to 12 USB ports. It's right. just how many can you fit on that back panel and do motherboard makers, do, do motherboard makers include the headers form? Does your case have header uh, cables to connect to these types of things? Um, you know, having four USB 3.0 ports is great. Uh, I don't know if you've run into this yet. I don't know if you've built a system since USB 3.0 has started kind of filtering out. One of the biggest problems is there's no standard for USB 3.0 headers on the motherboard, pinouts on the motherboard. Do you remember when um, you used to have to get, you got the USB headers from the motherboards and they were all individual pins. Multiple separate pins and you'd have to hopefully find the actual pinout for the USB 2.0 interpretation. I won't say not implementation because implementation implies that there is a standard that's being met. But in this case, the the motherboard manufacturer's best guess of what the pinout should be. Yeah. Um, And it's frustrating. Yeah, it's and it's, and it's completely unnecessary because you'd think like once they've gone through the gigantic, you know, IEEE or whatever, you know, certification crew is battling out over the, the actual specs, they could just take five seconds and be like, and, and let's do five pins in this shape with this one will be blank and, and do the standard connector. Um, and, and it's really funny. I mean, Intel also announced this week. Um, Ivy Bridge, the follow-up to Sandy Bridge, is going to include USB 3.0, kind of a given. Uh, well, right. actually, not kind of a given because it's also going yeah. to include Thunderbolt, which is currently found on MacBook Pros and Intel technology being debuted on Apple MacBook Pros. And it's the sort of combined high-speed bus, which has almost no products. And, oh, yes, it's also uh, you know an HDMI competitor, um, which is probably a, a gross oversimpl- oversimplification even for me. Right. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy, like 10 gigabits per second um, um, peak speed for Thunderbolt. So it's obviously uh, ready for the 3D video happiness. Um, but it's interesting. It's, it's, I, I'm, I'm kind of happy because I was afraid that Intel was going to be pushing Thunderbolt super hard and try to bury USB 3.0. And uh, uh, I, I, for one, am pleased that the next generation, I'm almost kind of tempted to wait for my next major uh, CPU upgrade until those uh, uh, Ivy Bridge uh, uh, parts are out. a while, though. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty happy with my Core i7 right now. Yeah. Uh, I still think you should be a little bit worried about uh, Intel's commitment to USB 3.0 versus their commitment right. to Thunderbolt. Um, Lip service is the first step, man. <laughs> that's true. It, it is the first step. It could also possibly be the last step. I think it depends a lot on how, if Thunderbolt isn't adopted, like if we don't see tons of accessories for it, if it doesn't really catch on, I think Intel's kind of, maybe they're hedging both bets, right? They're like, okay, well, Apple really wanted this. If it catches on, 
boom, we've got it on everything. And if it doesn't, hey, you know what? We've still got USB 3.0. This is maybe what the people actually really want. Uh, and we'll go down that road. Uh, Intel's still going to be, at, at, look, we're talking about at least a year behind. If they're talking about 2012, even if they're talking about March or April, it's a year behind what AMD has in terms of actual USB 3.0 support. And again, I guess we need to say, this doesn't mean you're not going to get it on Intel products or Intel boards. It's just, it's going to be a third-party chip. It's going to be an extra add-on, a little bit extra cost. Um, but I, it's it's interesting. Almost, I don't want to say almost everything, but most motherboards we're seeing released today have USB 3.0. A lot of notebooks are coming out now with USB 3.0. It's one of those things that I think it's catching on mm-hmm. in consumer space faster than these uh, accessory makers actually know about or not that they know about, but that they're paying attention and that they care about something like that. Um, because, you know, you go to your Best Buys, you go to those retail establishments. It's, you know, you don't see a lot of push about USB 3.0. You don't see, I don't see anybody talking about it or a lot of products kind of promoting it type of thing. Um, and you would think for a company like Western Digital, Seagate, that make a lot of high margin on uh, external, you know, backup drives and that kind of stuff, that this would be a kind of a key selling point for them. Um, so... I'm laughing. I'm, I'm trying to find like an actual Thunderbolt accessory in the wild. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's Let see. Apple.com slash Thunderbolt. There's the port. There's the logo with the fancy arrow. There's the video That's adapter. Yeah. <laughs> you there's know what's going to be out before Thunderbolt accessories, though? The SDK for. Spring 2011, which we are currently in. Uh, did they actually give us an actual date? It's this week or something like that, isn't it? I thought they just said this spring. Let me, let me, I found the actual, the research at Microsoft.com slash EN dash US, blah, 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 connect SDK. So just right. saying spring 2011 at this point. Okay. Later this spring, the Connect for Windows SDK is a programming toolkit that will enable researchers and enthusiasts easy access to the capabilities offered by the Microsoft Connect device. And I'm actually surprised they didn't stop in the middle of that sentence. The fastest selling consumer electronics item ever. <laughs> little because, because literally, like they're like, we're, we've we've sold more Connects faster than any other consumer electronics device in history. Because they say that like every five minutes at Microsoft. And props to them. It's ridiculously popular um but microsoft windows 7 sdk uh, audio processing um which includes a four element microphone array with sophisticated acoustic noise and echo cancellation for crystal clear audio sound source localization for beam forming which enables the determination of a sound spatial location depth data highly permanent robust skeletal tracking capabilities for determining the body positions of one or two persons uh documentation for the api sample code sample code is going to be really fun to watch people play with as soon as this hits um and I got to say, I'm really disappointed. I've been talking on Twitter today uh, about mm-hmm. the Xbox 360 Connect hack for Netflix, and apparently it's all audio. Because I was ready to, I was, I was ready Ooh. to breathe the possibility of divorce or, or simply being flat out killed for bringing a <laughs> console game home uh, in, into, you know, bringing a console game into my home. My wife's not big on consoles. Um, because I wanted to have the whole, I wanted to get my Tom Cruise Minority Report on and flip through cues, and it's just yep. the implementation is very. Uh, I will be uh, gentle and say that it is very sparse uh, in terms of what you would think for a a Connect implementation. Yeah, it's like uh, the Zoom interface for uh, Connect <clears throat> is still pretty sparse. I mean, you, it's it was really it was a really cool thing to to show. You know, it's like my parents and my sister and my family and stuff where you could. 
put your hand up and move it across the screen and scroll through the music selections and that kind of stuff. Right. It's really cool. I'm very excited for uh, what people are going to be able to do with this Connect SDK. Um, I've probably done three or four of those kind of like homebrew hacks. I don't mm-hmm. want to say how successfully, um, but for like the the Nintendo Wii remotes, how you could do right. uh, the head tracking, how you could do the digital whiteboard on your wall on anything. Um, with those devices, we played around with at least a handful of those, and it was really, really cool every time. Um, and I think, you know, connecting one of these up to a PC, hooking it up to a, you know, a home theater PC hooked up to your TV, what kind of imp- interesting implementations they're going to find is going to be really cool. And I, you know, Microsoft doesn't have to do this. They don't have to open up this SDK no. to the community like this. And I, and I think they should get a lot of props for doing that um, because it's not something they've necessarily done in the past. Uh, you still can't buy third-party Xbox 360 wireless controllers because they didn't want to open up that right. standard. Uh, and so I think it's pretty cool. And actually, I just saw on Engadget that there was... Oh, that was from March. Uh, the Xbox Connect on PS3 hack, which <laughs> is even even more interesting. Um, if you haven't so yeah. seen it, by the way, check out connecthacks.net. Which is kind oh, of a okay. gathering point. It's everything from like crazy, you know, graduate thesis, doctoral, you know, thesis, uh, graduate program, doctoral thesis level, you know, computer science experimentation to more like, look, here's a kid controlling a planetarium with, a, you know, the Connect. Um, it's a really interesting kind of. It's amazing to see how much people are doing with incredibly limited support from Microsoft for the device right. and how much they've accomplished so far. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm actually super excited to see what I, I want to watch this explode on windows seven. Uh, mostly though, I just want to get my windows media center on. I just want to be able to like lie on the couch and wave one hand and never have to look for the remote control again. <laughs> right. That's true. That would, that would be nice. I would, I would also appreciate that. How did the uh, Asus N53S, that Core i7 notebook, fare in the testing? Uh, very well. This was published at PCPer.com. Matt Smith, our notebook reviewer, uh, wrote it all up and everything. But we, we've gotten a lot of questions here on the show specifically about uh, Sandy Bridge notebooks when they're going to be available. Uh, they want high performance, not a whole lot of price. This is the Asus N53S. The S indicates that it is the next-gen Sandy Bridge iteration. This particular model had a Core i7-2630, which runs at 2 gigahertz, uh, discrete NVIDIA GTX 540M graphics with uh, support for the Optimus technology. So it turns off the discrete GPU when you're using integrated, and it turns back on when you're doing gaming, that types of thing. Uh, 4 gigs of memory, 750 gigs standard, 7200 RPM hard drive, uh, DVD drive all that stuff. 15.6-inch screen with a 1366 by 768 resolution display. Do you think that's a uh, an acceptable resolution on that? It seems a little low <laughs> to me for a 15-inch monitor. But. At this point, you know, on, on one hand, yeah, it seems a little low. On the other hand, you know, we just did a, we were talking actually on, on TechSell this week because the kid's like, I'm a I'm a programmer. My projects are getting big. I need a, a desktop monitor. And I talked to a bunch of friends of mine who are programmers. And what these guys are using in terms of like triple desk, you know, I, double monitors is a big deal for me. But like the idea of like creating a setup where you're running three like 24 inch monitors or multiple 30 inch flat panels 
and various, you know, landscape and portrait modes. So my whole concept of how much desk space I need exploded recently. So yeah, mm. I'm going to say 1366 is way too small. On the other hand, I know a lot of people who are immensely frustrated with high resolution notebook desktops. Huh. You know, people who aren't Photoshop, you know, because they're just like, why is everything so small? And then it's like, okay, um, we're going to go right click on the desktop and and nice. you know make everything bigger but yep. yeah for a 15 inch flat panel that seems a little on the low side but you know maybe asus it's is probably right in the normal range yeah that's true yeah. um the only it's see it had it, it's got a brushed aluminum finish it actually looks really nice uh well designed not nothing too fancy again it's not a, a three thousand dollar machine if you go to the second page of the review You'll see a YouTube video embedded there of the keyboard flex, which is the only problem he had with this machine. Um, and in particular, in a couple of specific locations, the keyboard flex is noticeably bad. So depending on how receptive you are to that, and it might be on a per individual unit um, case, but obviously right. you, really, you can't tell that. Um, it has decent battery life, uh, six and a half pounds. So it's not super portable. Right. But it is uh, reasonable, six and a half pounds battery life. I think we're talking somewhere in the four to four and a half range for a mm -hmm. standard, you know, eight cell battery. Not too bad there. That's pretty manageable. Performance, yeah, it is. Uh, performance is really good, as you would expect. Sandy Bridge processor, discrete graphics. It ran through the SciSoft benchmarks, uh, PC Mark Vantage Seven Zip, beating out, you know, the the Core Two base stuff, right. uh, or even the uh, Linfield or Arendelle base parts. Pretty handily, and it did, did decently for gaming, especially since we're, again, stuck at that 1366 resolution there. Uh, best part, I think, about this <clears throat> is the price. You can find it on Amazon for $1,050. 1050 cheap. Actually, it just went down to $1,019.99. So... Well let, let me ask you a quick question. Let me pull a viewer question before we... Before we Take our first sure. uh, ad break. Um, we had an email from David talking about Core i5 versus Core i7. He's talking about MacBook Pro, but I think it mm -hmm. applies really Mac or PC across the board. Um, he's wondering, will you see a big performance jump uh, choosing the Core i7 over the Core i5? In David's case, uh, he mixes sound for indie films. He's a soundtrack pro, so he's going to be hammering the CPU as hard as he can. Um, but he says, you know, 300 pounds, that's 600 bucks, give or take, is a lot of money when you work in the struggling Scottish film industry. <laughs> um, I'm going to resist the powerful urge to make the if it's not Scottish, it's crap joke, which I guess I just did. I'd like to apologize to everyone in Scotland. Um, but what do you look in terms of pure performance, like on the benchmark or applications, what's the kind of the spread you usually see? between the Core i5 and the Core i7? Um, I, I'm going to assume he's talking about Sandy Bridge only based right. here. He's talking about the MacBook Pro. Um, so the Core i5 doesn't have hyper-threading. So that, that's kind of the difference. Frequencies are going to vary. Like you'll be able to find Core i5s that run at frequencies about as high as the Core i7s. Um, $600, $500, whatever it is, is a, is a, a lot of money. Um, right. <sighs> If he's doing video editing, it might be worth it because right. you're going to see hyper-threading improvements that way, uh, without a doubt. Um, if you go to, I guess, um, if you look at the reviews of, if you look at the reviews of the desktop processors, if we take a look at, if I can uh, use my 
own browser here for a second for some reason what's going on but look at the performance differences between the core i5 and the core i7s of similar frequencies if you even go to our site or any other hardware site for that matter uh and look at the desktop versions and you'll see whatever percentage difference there is there kind of assume that that same kind of percentage difference is going to exist in the mobile form factor um, and specifically look at applications like Handbrake, where we're dealing with video. Uh, those are transcoding, not necessarily editing and that type of stuff, but at the end, what you're doing is transcoding, right? right. Um, for me personally, if I was buying a laptop and it was $1,500 versus $2,000, I would probably go with the $1,500 option, even mm-hmm. if I was going to do some modest audio video editing in that regards, because we're talking about, we're not just talking about 500 bucks. You're talking about 33% of the cost right. of that notebook as well. Um, and hyperthreading does improve performance, but it's not like adding new cores. Let me see if I can jump over to this, to these benchmarks here. Um, trying to see which one of these have it. No, I don't have any exact lined up uh, benchmark results to compare it. But I mean, in the desktop variant, the core I seven 2600 is not really that much faster than the 20 core i5 2500 um handbrake okay here we go it goes from 145 frames per second to 108 frames per second that is the drop essentially uh in losing hyper threading so in that particular case we're talking about 40 ish percent performance which is pretty good that's like a best case scenario pure transcoding a cpu 100 limited uh four threads versus eight threads Right. So depending on what type of software you're using, um, again, I still I still think maybe I would lean towards the lower cost option there. It's but. kind of funny if you if you take a look at Apple's uh, MacBook Pro performance page as you're digging through Apple.com, it's like the MacBook Pro application performance up to two x faster than previous generation MacBook Pros, and you click on the 13 inches of the Core i5 version uh, versus the 15 inch. And it's kind of like, hmm, okay, 15-inch, 2.2, 13-inch, 2.1. Cinebench, 11, yep. 1.9x for the 13 and 2.0. You know, it's, it's amazing, actually, how close they are. Yeah. Although it's it's going to be interesting to see uh, with the new version of Final Cut Pro coming out. Um, that, that was such big news at NAB this week. It'll be really interesting, I think, to see what's going on in terms of optimization inside the application for video editors. Although, you know, I guess the I don't know what he'd be using for the soundtrack on that. I, I, I guess part of what I'm saying, it's amazing how uh, updating the code and the algorithms can take advantage of hardware and produce ridiculous performance boosts. Should we take a moment to thank our friends at Squarespace? Uh, absolutely, we should. This episode of This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you by that very sponsor, Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. You know, one of the best things you can do if uh, you are perhaps looking to buy a new notebook, looking to buy it for a specific purpose, is to create a blog where you write down all your ideas, write down all your thoughts, Um it's a good way of keeping notes. It's a good way to point other people to your questions or your ideas or, hey, what do you think about comparing these two systems? Even if you're just emailing one of us, if you can just send us a link to your blog where you have these things kind of side by side laid out, that makes it much easier for people to get that information. And for you, you just have easy access to what was I thinking two weeks ago about this purchase price. One of the best ways you can do that, squarespace.com. It's an easy to use user interface for creating and managing a website or blog. And if you don't have any experience with it in the past, you'll be able to do this. It's optimized for beginners. 
and experts. If you know CSS and you want to get in there and change all your div stylings around, you can absolutely do that, but you don't have to. And that's what's key about Squarespace. There are lots of templates. Uh, you can use those templates. You can start with a template and make edits, change colors, change fonts, move things around very, very easily. And if you want to move them around, it's, it's, like, it's like a simple Ajax interface. If you know what that means, it just means if you like what's on the right column, chances are with Squarespace's <laughs> interface, you'll just be able to drag it over to the left side, hit save, and boom, your, your website is now reformatted. And uh, I tell you what, I could have really used some of those features uh, in website design years and years ago when we were building ours, <laughs> that's for sure. Back in the bad uh, old days. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm glad I don't have to look at that code much anymore. Uh, there are all kinds of modules. There are blog modules, uh, forums, form builders if you want to collect information from users, a Flickr photo displays, Twitter widgets, Google Maps, a whole lot more. It has website tracking, search engine optimizing, permission access handling if you want to have multiple people using the same website. Uh, it's based on a cloud architecture, so you don't have to worry about speed or liability. If you get a lot of traffic, you don't have to worry about the server crashing. They take care of all of that for you. Uh, you can use Squarespace for all of your website needs to build it, host it, and update it anytime. Now, if you want a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com, sign up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and build your website. You get two weeks, you know, build the website up. If you don't like it, cancel it. You're done. You don't, you know, you don't <laughs> even have to worry about calling them to remember to call them within that two-week window because you don't have to give them a credit card when you sign up. It's one of those things that free trials always kind of bothered me when they do that. So you don't have to do that in this case. <laughs> Uh, squarespace.com slash twitch is the url we'd like you to use t-w-i-c-h uh, for 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 that free 14-day trial and we thank them for their support of the show yay thank you squarespace well i guess we got a few more news bits to get to right yeah okay do we care about the g-force gt520 i don't all right until mike brown announced <laughs> the first 20 nanometer basically it's a new low-end gpu yeah if you're curious uh if you, want to if you got integrated graphics and you need something to do just barely a little bit more that's the type of card you're going for <laughs> slightly less sucktastic than onboard graph or slightly yeah intel micron uh, i've announced 20 nanometer uh, mlc nam flash for use in solid state drives um it's kind of funny uh nantech uh, had a pretty good article on this one and then shimpy over to nantech and he's like we just started testing ssds based on uh, imft 25 nanometer nand flash and look what intel micron just announced the first eight gigabyte mlc nand device built on a 20 nanometer process um you know, it's going to be much later this year at the earliest before they start shipping uh, production quality. And and what's kind of what what's interesting is is one of the things that uh, Anam pointed out is that 50 nanometers uh, IMFT NAM was good for 10,000 program erase cycles, rated not actual. They moved to 34 nanometers, dropped that to three to 5,000 program erase cycles, uh, and then they managed to hold that three to 5,000 when they moved to 25 nanometer. Uh, mm -hmm. Micron basically says that they're going to keep it. They're kind of you know as the product evolves we're going to keep that three to five thousand program erase cycles uh and before everybody starts waving their hands going three to five thousand program erase cycles won't my you know ssd become right. incredibly useless in six months um they're doing some pretty sophisticated management of how data is written and the truth is most of what you do on on a drive is actually read data um but it's interesting to watch uh 
Uh, it's interesting to watch how fast this is evolving, and it's they've got a pretty good uh, up the Nantech page. They've got like 34 nanometer versus 25 nanometer versus 20 nanometer, yeah. and you're looking at like you know two bit per cell MLC NAND device, uh, 118 millimeters squared at nanometer. Uh, <laughs> it's you know they didn't even have a single eight gigabyte NAND device at 34 nanometers, which is right. like. It, it's crazy. It just, you know, it's. I've been watching Moore's Law for pretty much my entire adult life, but it still makes me go, wow, <laughs> aerial density is cool. Yep. Um, the flip side, though, is, is something we were actually talking about uh, with Anand uh, uh, last week when we had him on is like the 50% reductions, you know, over the course of a year in SSD prices are pretty much gone. <laughs> um, but you can look for maybe 20 to 30%, 30% way on the outside uh, uh, as, as they drop from 20 nanometer NAND down to 25 nanometer NAND. So that is something. Prices will continue to drop, just not as aggressively as they were in the first year of SSD mayhem. That's bad news for consumers, I think, overall. But it's good news yeah. for those people who maybe were on the verge of buying something. The the, mm -hmm. the always got to waits, so to speak. Um, you don't have to worry about that fifty percent price drop hitting time. you as soon as you buy. <laughs> so yeah, it might be time to actually pick up and buy. So, um, speaking of storage and hard drives, how would you like? Uh, a hard drive that automatically erases itself. doesn't sound really cool uh, when you <laughs> word it that way, but if we're talking about security reasons, it might be more appealing. This is a Toshiba self-encrypting drives. Uh, enable system manufacturers to configure different data invalidation options that align with various end-user scenarios. That's kind of a roundabout way of saying if uh, the hard drive gets stolen and they put it in a different computer, it has the ability to wipe itself clean right. so that they don't access your data. It's, is this something I, consumers need to worry about, or? Well, it, it, I mean, it's 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 probably more of an enterprise corporate thing. Um, you know, it, one of the things that's really interesting about the Intel three twenty, their their latest round of uh, uh, solid state drives, is that they have on the fly encryption built in with the idea that you can encrypt basically, you know, minimizing the performance penalty for encrypting the content of your hard drives and securing it um, essentially not so much against, well, it, well, essentially against theft, right? You don't want people to be right. able to access your data. Um, what's interesting is uh, the computer world, the computer world article that talks about uh, these new Toshiba self racing drives is, is, you know, they're like two and a half inch, 7,200 RPM drives, not really big, like 160, 640 gigabytes, um, but they're for PCs, copiers, and multifunction printers, along with point-of-sale systems. So they're very targeted at, at, at sort of verticals, um, you know, areas where you have a legal liability if the information escapes. So it's. I think they're probably going to be. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm going to say they're considerably expensive, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, a pretty healthy uh, premium on these drives compared to a stock, uh, a standard Toshiba 2.5 inch 7200 RPM drive. I mean, AES 256 bit encryption uh, is built on board. Um, a quote proprietary data wipe technology from uh, uh, the Trusted Computing Group, the Opal, or the, basically it's the Opal storage specification. Mm. And it's going to be interesting. It's like, Wright said Toshiba's technology allows multiple ways that data can be invalidated. Wipe zero, standard ATA security and TCG Opal data invalidation command protocol. Wipe one, protected data ranges invalidated at every power cycle. So basically it tries to wipe it every time it comes up. Um, <laughs> wipe two, protected data ranges invalidated if an uncertified host is connected. Wipe three, protected data ranges invalidated if a driver sees multiple invalid unlock commands. 
Um, <laughs> when asked what might happen if a host motherboard failed, Wright said, wipe one would not be the ideal setting for data protection. <laughs> so that seems uh, appropriate. Yeah. I, do you worry about when we're joking about it, but do we worry about this accidentally being enabled? And uh, I think they were joking on, on TNT yesterday or the day before, whenever this news came out that, right. you know, what if you just, what if a user just takes their hard drive out of the laptop and plugs it into something else, just thinking, oh, I'm just going to copy some data over or, and all of a sudden they're like, hey, oops. This is why you should always back up your data <laughs> locally and on an, I mean, like, you know what I mean? It, it, it comes, we, every, every week, every show, people are going to stop listening because they don't want to hear, they don't want to be told to back up. But it's literally, it's like, you know, I think these drives are going to be targeted. I, I think it's going to be extremely unusual for one of these drives to show up uh, in any consumer. I think people, I think consumers are going to have to go out of their way to find one of these to install in a notebook. I think in most cases, you know, they're going to show up in, you know, point of sale computer systems, you know, basically large verticals where it's like you've got an insurance company storing critical information or a hospital storing critical information that they don't want to, you know what I mean? They don't, they don't want somebody to be able to sneak into the hospital and unscrew the back of something and, and swap the drive out. So I think the large infrastructure that will be surrounding these verticals will help protect, uh, uh, from that kind of data loss. On the flip side, you know, security equals the possibility of not being able to get to the stuff you secured. I don't know. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll get an email from somebody in a few months about how they got one of these drives <laughs> and couldn't access their data when their their motherboard died. But right. uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see what uh, what comes out of that. I just thought it was a fascinating concept, the idea that they're they're building this into the hard drive level. Eventually computers that, will make all of our decisions for us. That's just let's get started now. And you know, it's one of my yeah, let's not even go there. Skynet, Google. Um <laughs> now you mentioned consoles a little bit earlier that you're not allowed to have them. Um we don't talk about them a whole lot here, but when we comes up with new hardware maybe we do want to talk about this was interesting there's a lot of news floating around now about a nintendo new nintendo console um i haven't heard a whole lot about this other than that i don't know if they're just going to call it nintendo hd but it's going to be about at the performance level of the current ps3 and xbox 360 right um which is a big improvement over its current um current configuration but i i would think for, for our standpoint, we're hardware guys. We we like to see advancements in hardware. Um, Xbox 360's been out for five years right. now. Uh, so now Nintendo is catching up to being five years behind um, is the cynical way of looking at things, right? Yeah, well, it's also... It also I mean, Nintendo... Okay, the 3DS is kind of lame. Sorry, Nintendo fanboys and girls. But the... Uh, I just I just think the 3ds is kind of something they built because 3D was really big in the news last year. The only thing but, I would like about it, have you seen the um, those games that you have the cards on the table or whatever? Yes. And that I, I was, think is actually really. Cool. We had uh, Kyle Weens from I Fix It on uh, on Texel, and he brought us 3ds as we were gutting an iPad. He was actually talking about what how what a difficult device it is to get inside of. But yeah, yeah. I found myself sitting there on the table like. Bink, bink. And I don't, I don't know how long that would last. <laughs> it's the little yellow cube crawls out the, of the... 
Yeah, I've only really played with it at stores, so you might be right. Anyway, I didn't mean to sidetrack us there. No, but I mean, I, I think part of it's N- Nintendo's like, we're focusing on gameplay, we're focusing on on so much of the classic Nintendo experience. Um, we're just going to quick scoot out 1080p capabilities. You know, it's almost like they're building... I almost feel like Nintendo's building this so they can have parity with stuff like Netflix or Vudu or Hulu. Um, more so... Uh, on that side of the of, of being an anchor for a home entertainment system, right? Because I think SD is starting to really hurt them that way. Um, then they have, you know, I mean, I don't think they really care about trying to do a big tech leapfrog over the Xbox 360 or the PS3, partially because you know, I, I'm sure there's another Xbox and, and another PS3. You know, the PS4 I guess would be coming. I just don't see. Microsoft or Sony being at the point where they want to have to do that whole entire console launch, incredible amount of investment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, they will. <laughs> they will eventually, um, but they're definitely stringing things on as long as they possibly can, making as much money now as opposed to that initial investment period. One of the other things I read here uh, at a site called Game Rant is that the other uh, rumor going behind is that the controllers are going to be very different with this new console system, especially mm-hmm. if you consider when the Wii came out, uh, the motion controls were very innovative and um, unique at the time. Since then, right. you've had the move and the connect and uh, higher resolution capability in these controllers. And uh, I, that's going to be completely revamped. And they're also talking about the possibility of having a built-in color LCD on each of the controllers as well, and they referenced the Sega Dreamcast with the VMU thing on there. I remember very specifically that, and the only time it was ever useful for me was uh, playing like sports games, football, where you chose your play on that as opposed to on the screen where your opponent could see. So that was always interesting, but it should be kind of cool. You know, I, I am I am a I am a gamer on both PCs and consoles, so I am ready for updates to. The, the 360 and the PS3 and all that type of stuff. I like to see yeah. new hardware and what they can push out and that kind of stuff. And if they upgrade these consoles, it's good news for PC gamers that want better image quality on their PC games. We always talk about PC games coming out being console ports, where they don't spend a lot of time improving it for the extra horsepower you get on the PC. If they improve the horsepower on the Xbox 360 and PS3, that will help in that regard as well. So... Exciting stuff. Uh, Let's talk uh, quickly before we get into our emails here about the second of today's sponsors. That would be Netflix. Speaking of the Wii, the Xbox 360, and the PlayStation 3, which you can absolutely do streaming video on with your Netflix account. Very cool. Uh, It delivers movies directly to your home, saves you time, money, and hassle. If you've never heard of Netflix, I don't know where you've been. They are a great service for movies, TV watching, whether or not you're getting these DVDs or Blu-ray sent to your house or through the streaming technologies that they have. Uh, You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies stream to your PC or Mac or to a Netflix-ready device, including the consoles we just mentioned. And a lot of DVD players, a lot of Blu-ray players, a lot of TVs have this all built in. Um, Plus, you can still get DVDs by mail in about one business day. Uh, My household, it's kind of what it works. My wife likes to get the physical copies in I prefer to do the streaming. Obviously, you have select, different selections for both, so sometimes you make compromises. Um, you can watch as many movies as you want anytime you want. There are never any late fees and no due dates. So Yay. that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> one of the movies that actually I was also impressed to see 
uh, was available on Netflix streaming is the new Star Trek flick from J.J. Abrams. I was a big fan of that. I was not a big, I have to admit, I'm not a Star War or Star Trek junkie growing up. I was always on the Star Wars side of the fence. I much preferred that over Star Trek. Star Trek always seemed a little bit stodgier, more for people like my dad, where <laughs> Star Wars seemed more like people who were younger. But the new Star Trek movie was was good. It brought me back into the fold of things. I really like that. You can stream that to your PC instantly right now if you go to Netflix and sign up for an account. Um, you can watch it instantly now or any other TVs, uh, any of other thousands of TV episodes or other movies when you register for the free trial at netflix.com slash twit, T-W-I-T, twit. Uh, if you sign up for your free trial there, instantly watch anything, start signing up for uh, those DVDs or Blu-rays by mail. I think you're going to enjoy the service. I know you're going to enjoy the service if you are a movie or TV lover as Patrick and I are. So yeah, no, Netflix, for their Netflix is what enabled my wife and I to cut the satellite cable. <laughs> oh, yeah. Without Saving Netflix, us. my wife's uh, recent trip to the uh, OR and then subsequently laying on the couch for two weeks would have been uh, much more painful for both of us. Oh, my Let's goodness. She okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's fine. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of resting, a lot of downtime. So all made easier by Netflix streaming and Netflix DVDs. So this is true. Alan's got a question about. Well, Alan has an upgrade opportunity, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is a really awesome way of putting it. He says my rig is currently running four 500 gig WD Blue hard disk drives in a RAID 10 configuration, which has worked flawlessly so far. However, as is sadly the case with our beloved computers, performance has slowly deteriorated over time from use. I'm going to reformat and do a fresh install of 64-bit Win 7, but I was contemplating an upgrade to an SSD boot drive. Do it. Brief system overview as follows. I7920 with mild overclocking to 3.6 gig, EVGA motherboard, uh, GTX 570, 6 gigs of RAM, a Corsair TX850 watt power supply, and that giant collection of hard drives. The question here is threefold, gentlemen. First, given my motherboard doesn't support SATA 3, what is the current price performance sweet spot for SATA 2 SSDs? I know a SATA 3 out in the market, the older drive should start falling in price. It's more of a dream than a reality. But where should I be looking for the most performance bang for my buck? Performance here is priority over price. Second, as we know, the longer I wait, the cheaper everything will be. But is now as good a time as any to jump in without feeling like it got ripped off in six months. Do you expect a big price drop in the near future? Third, should I forget about the SSD upgrade until I upgrade my motherboard to take advantage of SATA 3? Um, well, in kind of we we sort of address the the SSD price drops. Um, you, you will feel annoyed in six months. I don't feel you will. I don't think you'll be looking at the SSD through the wall of your your PC case, thinking what an incredible waste of money that was. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I probably wouldn't wait to upgrade to SATA 3 because it, I, I've got some friends who are programmers who upgrade their drives every 15 minutes, uh, mm. especially high end, because they, they're dealing with huge volumes of data and huge amounts of, of, of uh, just ridiculous amounts of reading and writing off the drive. So for them, as my dad once said, when he went from a 
a a a large you know four door sedan to a 300zx twin turbo 300zx he said you know i just gained 4 hours a week and it took me till i was about 20 to realize he meant he he could drive so fast it was like he had more time cuz he could get from point a to point b faster if you're doing stuff where you're constantly constantly moving stuff on and off the drive then the ssds are great if there's enough space on the ssd for you right. and the 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 SSD drives are so much faster than anything uh, with a rotating spindle, any classic hard drive. I, I don't think you're going to be too traumatized by not getting the SATA three stuff uh, or the six gigabit per second stuff. Um, man, OCC Vertex two, you know the cautions about one. the 128 versus like the 240 drives. Where should we go next with this? Um. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's a big concern either way. If, right. if you want to be super safe about it, you, I mean, there. If you go to the occtechnology.com website, you'll see that they have actually created new model numbers now to differentiate right. between them. Corsair has different model numbers on their uh, Sandforce-based. Uh, what do they call them? The S F series. I don't hmm. remember exactly what their model numbers were um, to differentiate there. I, I. I think I agree with you. I mean, the SATA twos are going to be fine, and in fact, for the SATA six G. Uh, set of three 6.0 gigabit per second drives. It's it you're like basically like you're saying you're not going to be using the full bandwidth of that very often. So really, what you're after is that access time, reliability, that type right. of thing, high IOs per second, and uh, you'll be able to get that on both set of three and set of two drives. So. And of course, read the reviews, Alan's stuff up at PCPer.com and Ann's stuff up at Nantech.com. Just. Yep. Read before you drop the big cash. Indeed. Should we talk about missing RAM? <laughs> yeah, I got an email from Bander here. He says he has an X58 motherboard with an i7 and six gigs of triple channel memory, two gigs each. Suddenly, one day, Windows could only recognize four gigs. He does have 64-bit Windows. Uh, it could only recognize four gigs of it, or it recognizes the whole six gigs, then it blue screens when gaming and such. After some MIM testing, it turns out that one of the RAM sticks had gone bad. I removed it, and now it's running smoothly. My questions, how much performance am I losing, if any, because I'm using only two sticks of RAM in a three-channel system? Should I buy one more RAM stick to complete the setup? And if so, does it have to be the exact same latency as the older RAM? Uh, should I just buy a new three-set of RAM? And if so, I want to use the older RAM with the new ones. Uh, will that affect performance, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, thanks for taking the time. Love the show. So that's actually kind of interesting. We've had that happen here in our systems as well. You do lose performance when you do not populate all channels of a memory control on a processor. So in this case, you only have two out of three channels of memory. You are losing performance. Um, I would say probably not by an incredible amount. Yeah, I was going to say... You might see more performance drops going from six to four gigs uh, than from three to two channels. Right. I was, I was going to say, it's kind of funny. If you have to ask what kind of performance hit you're taking, you're really not feeling that much of a performance hit. That's true. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, you know, it, I, it almost goes so far as to say tri-channel is, is, is fading, you know, by the time, is it yes. gone by the time we get to Ivy Bridge? Probably uh, gone yeah, by the I mean, time we get further. If you look, at, if you look at, you know, uh, the, the last triple channel controller was, um, you know, the core i7-900 series of processors. And since then, we've seen Linfield release, we've seen Clarkdale release, we've seen Sandy Bridge release, all of which are dual-channel setups. As it turns out, uh, a, a standard 
processor, central processing unit has trouble um, utilizing all that memory bandwidth. So dual channel seems to be more than enough for most cases. However, if you have a Core i7 system, you do have triple channel. It's just kind of one of those things where you, it's, it's like, you just want to make sure they're all full. In my opinion, right. that's what I would do. Uh, of your options there, buying one or buying another set of three, uh, I would just buy the one. And it doesn't have to be exact. A lot of, it, back, you know, when, when integrated memory controllers were first being introduced on processors, that was a big concern. It's not so much now. I run unmatched memory fairly often <laughs> without a whole lot of problems. Um, just make just make sure it's close. If you have DDR3-1600, right. make sure you got another 30... DDR3-1600. If you can match latencies, that's fine. Um, the worst case scenario is if you buy a new one and it runs a little bit slower uh, in mm-hmm. cast latency or settings, then the other ones will have to be brought back to match that same thing. Um, right. And you were asking if you buy another new uh, three set of RAM, could you add the other two in? You're going to have the same issues. You're going to have mismatched RAM capacities in each channel, um, mm-hmm. so it's not going to properly utilize it anyway. So I would just go with, just buy one more stick of RAM. You'll probably be able to get it for 20 bucks, right. $25 or something like that. So I know that because I just ordered, we're, we, we're building a new video editing rig, dual processor, dual six core processors, um, 24 threads, and we're putting 24 gigs of memory in it. And I think I got 24 gigs of memory for like $240. It's, like that. It was ridiculously cheap. Yeah. And I also want to take a moment to point out that, you know, as somebody who has 12 gigabytes of RAM in their core i7 system, yeah. um, if you're not doing big video editing, if you're not doing, you know, crazy 3D applications, it's kind of like, you know who you are if, if you need, <laughs> you know, 24 gigabytes of RAM, but just, you know, you don't need it to run video games. You don't need it to do basic right. desktop applications. You don't need it because you have a really huge spreadsheet unless you have a, a spreadsheet, the likes of which, you know, um, I, I, I shudder to even contemplate. Um, six gig is a really nice sweet spot for a um, for a uh, triple channel uh, 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 yeah, memory system. And, um, you know, it, it's, you know, the, you can say, okay, I've got 12 gigs and Windows is going to be able to cache more uh, application data in, in system memory to make for super fast application launches. But it's probably, you know, on the flip side, it's probably ridiculously cheap at this point. Um, mm-hmm. But don't feel like you have to have, you know, 12 gigabytes of RAM to really get the big performance. And also, you know, one of the things I've, I've heard but have not seen a lot of the testing I'd like to see to understand more what's going on, it's better to have like six gigabytes of memory in the three channels than six gigabytes of memory in one gigabyte stick spread across six um, um, tri-channels or, or two sets of tri-channels. So, you know, two gigabyte sticks, three gigabyte sticks, keep them in one set of the tri-channel memory and you'll be a happier camper if you're thinking about upgrading your memory. <laughs> um, you know, I actually, I was stumped by uh, Jack with his iFinity question. And um, he wants to know if you can do a six monitor iFinity setup with two video cards set up in Crossfire. And for some reason, I want to say no because... You know, six monitors is at least two too many in my world, maybe three too many. Can you set up Crossfire and feed six monitors? Uh, it, what he's asking, no. So this this is one of the, the negatives right. of Ifinity. Yes, you are <laughs> right. correct. Because um, that was like when, when the 5000 series of graphics card first came out that supported three displays. Uh, you know, you could do three displays out of one card, do Ifinity that way. 
-hmm. You could add in a second card that could also support three displays, but you could not run a single Ifinity display configuration across displays coming out of two different cards. So you're limited to a three display Ifinity. Now you've got the performance benefits of Crossfire still pushed across those three monitors, but you could only have the displays hooked up to one graphics card. And uh, that's still the case. So no, you won't be able to have two Radeon 5000 or 6000 series cards hook it up to six monitors. You can do that. You'll be able to have six monitors, but you won't be able to run a single iFinity configuration out of them. And the reason is uh, the, the driver that AMD and NVIDIA now uses with Surround essentially trick the operating system into believing that there is one display of a super high resolution connected to Windows and or connected to to the graphics card. And That's interesting. It, you can't fool it enough to think that it's all coming through one, two different frame buffers, I guess is what I should say, from two different graphics cards. So if you want six monitor Ifinity configuration, you have to buy the uh, either the... 5870 Affinity Edition graphics card, which had six mini DisplayPort outputs, <laughs> or or the new way you can do it is um, you really can't even do this yet. But DisplayPort 1.2 supports DisplayPort hubs, which so you can have you know one DisplayPort coming out and supporting six one DisplayPort port on your graphics card out to a hub that then has connections for six displays. And you'd be able to do it that way. You might have to have two hubs for that, one for each, one one for three monitors each. The problem with that is DisplayPort 1.2 hubs like basically don't exist right, right now. If they do, they're probably incredibly expensive um, because they're so up on that scale of, of, of usage right now. Nobody's, nobody's using them. Um, so it's possible, and that's why AMD hasn't made like a, an Ifinity 6 edition Graphics card since then because they, <laughs> they keep saying, Well, display 1.2, you're allowed to split out. But right. I, I think the number of people actually doing a six panel iFinity configuration is pretty low. So I was gonna say, you better really, really love your flight sim if you're gonna commit the cash to make this happen. <laughs> that is very true. Very true. So I, I'm because I'm sitting there like, Why else would you need, you know, crossfire and 3D acceleration across six panels? I keep coming back to really outrageous flight sim configurations. Yep, Jack has a great. Practical question. He says, I purchased an Asus P8P67 Pro Mobo January 9th, built a great Sandy Bridge system, and I'm going to skip the specs so they don't really matter. He says, the system is right. flawless and really, really fast. My question is this, should I pull the board and return it? Why? Because, of course, the Sandy Bridge flaw. Um, or should I just leave it? I have my SSD and optical drive and the 6-gig Intel SATA ports, and I have two 2-terabyte two drives and the Marvell 6-gigabit SATA ports, and I'm even using the J-Micron eSATA for an external 2-terabyte hard drive. Pulling the motherboard out would be such a big pain. I don't plan on ever touching the Intel 3-gigabit SATA ports. Do you think it's okay that I just leave well enough alone? Everyone is telling me I'm nuts for not returning the board. Anyways, love the show and would appreciate your thoughts. Uh, and also, he says, uh, P.S. Will motherboard companies continue to release BIOS, EFA, EFI updates for the B2 stepping boards? That actually concerns me more than um, than uh, uh, the, you know not having access to the three gigabit uh, ports. Because um, part of me is like, it works. You're happy. Don't fix it. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, 
He says, I mean, he even says, I think he answers the question, I don't plan on ever touching Intel 3 gigabit SATA ports. Right. Um, and even if you do, even then, it's such a rare problem. Like, I wouldn't even feel, I wouldn't even feel that bad about it if I, if I decided to put an extra couple of drives on those. Um, so, no, I, if, he, if he doesn't want to go through the trouble of pulling out the board, not having a system for anywhere from three days to 10 days, depending on your motherboard manufacturer, their return policy, their RMA processing and shipping delays and that kind of stuff. Um, then I have no problem with that. I, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't think anybody should be calling you crazy for not doing that. Um, you're not getting upgraded boards. It's not like originally we thought MSI was going to try to replace P67 boards with Z68 boards. That didn't happen. Z68 wasn't early enough. Um, the issue with the BIOS is, is, you're right, is a much better question. And I asked a couple of people. Yeah. And because the B2 and B3 steppings are identical on these motherboards, ah. like you have the P67A GD65 B3, it is identical to the B2 um, in terms of the BIOS. So one BIOS update will be good for the either or. You'll be able to use uh, the BIOS updates for that motherboard for your B2 stepping. It won't affect anything in that regard. So you don't have to worry about cool. them not updating and, and, and releasing new BIOS or EFI revisions for, uh, for your board. So um, tell the naysayers that you are not crazy. That both <laughs> Patrick and Ryan thought it was completely a viable solution to just leave well enough alone. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not one of those things where you, where you've got like, you know, I mean, sometimes you run into errors with a chipset or, or more likely actually the way a board is manufactured. Um, I've seen cases where a board is manufactured like they had problems with the PGA soldering on on the board for for a GPU or a very specialized high end graphics card for like you know video capture or something, and you know your board kind of worked, but if it got hot one too many times, um, the pins would actually start separating and it would get worse and worse over time as the card heated up and cooled down and heated up and cooled down and 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 flexed. Um, if the three gigabyte set of ports go, they go. It doesn't impact the rest of the chipset. So that's a big plus. We, uh, we're going to hold off on a question about getting a digital to analog converter. That's basically a, a high-end audio device to make your ears happy or not. Daniel's wondering if there's any point to that. <laughs> we're going to talk about that next week along with an email from Darren talking about storage area networks, uh, which is basically a fancy way of saying somebody's pre-assembled free NAS box lets me store stuff <laughs> on the internets, which is a good way to do local storage before you back it up offline somewhere else because I can't resist the urge to tell people to back up every chance I can. At least one more time in there, right? <laughs> just just for the sheer unbridled joy of it. Um, what's coming up on PC Pro this week? Um, I don't know if I mentioned this. We do have, all the testing is done on the G, uh, the GTX 460 two-win card from EVGA, just trying to compile all that stuff together. Um, also, uh, people who follow me on Twitter probably realized I was asking about home theater PC remotes. And I found a couple that I'm going to be kind of eh, not really reviewing, but just kind of editorializing, discussing on. You'll see this little thing right here. Is that um, it's actually, no, it is. Uh, I forget what brand it is. Model RT dash MWK one. It's, it was pretty cheap. It was like 35 bucks on Amazon. Mm -hmm. It's got a full keyboard type deal. It's got like a little um, touchpad there. And it has the integrated, it's got the 2.4 gigahertz wireless USB right. things. You plug this into the laptop, boom, you're ready to go. It's rechargeable. It's got a physical on-off switch, so battery life won't be an issue there. But um, it doesn't I, have I've a trackball used... like my Lenovo controller does. <laughs> no, it does not. No. 
It has a laser pointer on it, though. Yeah, Ooh, yeah, you're kidding? It no, really no. has a laser pointer? It has a laser pointer on the end, yeah. It won't show up, but um, it's kind of nice. It's it's a little bit clunky, but for 30 bucks, I figure it's worth trying. Also, I mentioned this on the PC Perspective podcast last night. If you have an Android phone, look mm-hmm. up Unified Remote. It's a piece of software you install on your computer and then on your phone, and you can use it as a remote control for your computer. Just, you know, like the touchscreen is like the touchpad on your on your laptop. Uh, and, you know, you click, double click, you can bring up the keyboard and type stuff in. It's actually really, really cool, and it's free you know donations accepted type of thing but it was a really cool application um, you you need purpose. to talk to robert heron about some of the some of the sort of iphone and android control systems for home theater systems okay he has spent a lot of quality time doing terrible terrible things with perfectly innocent remote controls <laughs> that sounds more weird than it probably is but i will give him uh, a shout and see uh what his kind of recommendations are i, I know a lot of people talk about the the uh, logitech de novo mini but that one was, I mean, that was like 120 bucks or something like that. Um, yeah. So I figured I, I would try the cheap knockoff <laughs> brand. It's funny that if I had, I wish I had the boxer in front of me because the box looks just like a Logitech box as well. <laughs> it has the black to teal type of fade going on and stuff. It's Can nice. you say Chinese knockoff? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and if it works, that's fine. Also, uh, we should have the new website design at PCPer.com up. I'm trying for tonight over and, and into Friday, so cool. check that out and see if you can break the site later, I guess. That's all. <laughs> Don't uh, how about on site. Techzilla or HD Nation? Well, I'm going to be out next week, so that's kind oh, of that's exciting. Right. I do know that uh, Adam Pass from Lifehacker, he's, he's like the EIC over at Lifehacker is on. We're talking about uh, Crash Plan and backing stuff up and <laughs> what's going on with their new Revision 3 show. Basically, Lifehacker's doing a TV show with uh, the crew here at Revision 3. Um, we talk about sort of the emergency kit, some desk kit options for drying out cell phones if you get them wet as we sort of get into the spring rain beginning <laughs> of the beach season. That's a good uh, idea. And we had a really funny viewer question involving a cat, the cat vomiting a Roku box and trying to resurrect it. Uh, sadly, the 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 Texel viewer in question did not FedEx us the cat vomit encrusted good. Roku box. Yeah, probably good, but it would have been really fun to do on camera. Um, and of course, we got uh, some product reviews, HD Nation, and uh, uh, some new HGTVs uh, reviews coming up next week. The, all the 2011 HGTVs are showing up. Um, uh, the the 8000s from Samsung, which we haven't finished benchmarking yet, but we've, we got one in house, and it looks fantastic. It cool. is just is. I loves me some shiny new HCTVs. I think that's it for this week in computer hardware. I'm Patrick Dorton. I'm Ryan Trout. We'll see you next week. <laughs>